Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous. Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous Film Twitter.com, and this is the Mr. Movies Podcast. Mr. Movies podcast coming out on a goddamn Saturday night. That's that doesn't surprise me. He's got very poor time management skills right now. Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a great weekend, or whenever you're listening to this. Um, I wanted to do a double feature for the podcast, and I couldn't figure out what the double feature should be because I really really wanted to do Uncle Boon Me for the podcast. And then I was like, well, what matches up with that? And then I thought and I thought and I tried, tried real hard, thought real, real big. And then I ended up just kind of giving up. And last night I went and saw The Green Knight. And wouldn't you know, the two pair really well in a specific aspect. I know what you're thinking. You're like, ah, you know, these are two movies that show uh, religions that aren't uh, specifically like the Western evangelical Christianity. And no, you're, you're, you're actually going to be airballing on that one. That sounds really, really interesting. And, um, you know, like I'd, I'd really like to expand on that, but um, I'm, I'm not really feeling it right now. And then I know what else you guys are thinking. You're like, ah, these are two movies that deal with looming death. Yeah, that, that's a really, really good point, you know? And uh, to that, I gotta say, you're trying too hard there. That one is, you know, it's, are these movies even about dying? And I disagree. Because the double feature that I have put together is called Guy Goes for a Little Walk in the Forest. And that's what, that's what we're doing. The Green Knight and Uncle Boon Me are... Movies where a fella, just like you and me, goes for a walk in a forest and has a great time. I've seen Uncle Boon Me described as probably the greatest film of the decade. And that there's a project that I want to do. I want to start grouping movies by decades and kind of talk about, you know, like, yeah, you could do, like, your best movies of the decades, but one that I really want to do is, like, uh, movies that are truly emblematic of the decade that they came from, if that makes sense. So, like, the best movies that are going to come out of the 2000s, at least from, like, an American lens, are going to be movies that deal with paranoia of somebody watching something or finding out a great secret, You know, as 9-11 happened and it fucked the whole world up, uh, that's the type of film that I would kind of slate as like, oh, this is truly emblematic of the 2000s. And any movie that has a terrorist takeover, sure. But I like to think a lot more along the lines of like um, the deep, suspicious paranoia of something like In the Mood for Love. (laughs) Mm-hmm. 
which to me, in my opinion, is the greatest film of the early 2000s. I think that actually nothing comes close. Um, that includes No Country for Old Men. That includes, uh, what's, when did Freddy Got Finger come out? It's the best of the best. There is hardly any film to me that comes close to it in terms of style, in terms of structure, and in terms of what it did for uh, romance movies just in general. It's a mystery movie, it's a romance movie, and the romance of it is a forbidden romance. There's so many layers to it that are really genuinely interesting. The shot blocking is unbelievable. Every shot literally is staged to look like a painting, except for the shots that have the comedic relief guy in it, which feel like pure and total chaos and they are intentionally shot poorly because that's kind of what the guy does to them as they're trying to figure out if their um, partners are cheating on them with each other now whenever it comes to the 2010s um, there's a whole lot of films you could throw up for being like what's going to be the most emblematic of the decade and i think that when the dust settles the one that's going to be the most emblematic of the 2010s is going to be Spike Jones's Her. Mr. Theodore Twombly, welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Okay. Are you social or antisocial? I guess I haven't been social in a while. How would you describe your relationship with your mother? Oof, Thank you. Please wait as your operating system is initiated. Hello, I'm here. Hi. Hi. I'm Samantha. We live in an incredibly lonely age. Uh, it's very, very tough to feel wanted, to feel appreciated, to feel like you matter at all. And the movie Her just kind of shows that as we've grown more isolated, we've kind of shifted our focus towards things that are online. And it's not as cut and dry as like, damn, we're all going to be having sex with our computers in two years. It's not that. It's the fact that it's like we are incredibly lonely people and what we're looking for is a genuine connection. And sometimes we project genuine connections on people who may not be looking for one or who may not be giving us exactly that. And that's largely what that movie's about, you know? Like he falls in love with somebody who is... He pretty much paid to fall in love with him, if that makes sense. So... That film, to me, is going to end up being the one that's like, oh, this is going to be the most emblematic of the decade, which leaves the spot, what's the best film to come out of the 2010s? And I don't have an argument for this. However, the people that I respect that are film writers, uh, they, they all seem to be in consensus that Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his previous lives, past lives, I can never remember the title of the movie, is the movie of the decade, and having watched it twice now, I think I agree. Uncle Boon Me is just, <laughs> just such a stunning, stunning argument for the looming the dread of death, uh, the implications of the religion that is in the area on how you process passing on to the afterlife, uh, what the concept of the afterlife even is. And I don't know, it's a splash of cold water for somebody who was largely raised on Protestant and evangelical uh, religious-inspired media. I mean, that's really the only type of religions that are dominant in media in uh, America, you know? It's these very waspy tales of white Christmases. 
And they say white a bit too prominently. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. <laughs> so I wanted to open up with an article. This is in The New Yorker. This is by a writer named Richard Brody. Richard Brody wrote an article simply titled, Uncle Boone Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives. The article opens up by saying the Thai director... Ap- Probably should have practiced the name before I got on the podcast. Apichitpong Wirasetkul? Wirasetkul's new film, Uncle Boon Me, Who Can Recall His Past Lives, opens today at the Film Forum, where it will play through March 15th. David Denvey's capsule review in the magazine this week, I agree with him, is that the film's aura of the uncanny, the spirit life entering the everyday, is strangely affecting. There is, for instance, a sequence in which the ghost of his late wife uh, leads Uncle Boon Mi, who is dying of kidney disease, into a cave, the passage from life to death, and most important, the infinitesimal border between them is expanded into space and time, conjuring with the merest of physical actions and gestures a sense of vast metaphysical striving. Um, he goes on to talk about the, the light and a straightforward visual touch um, that the director shows uh, the transmigration of souls between humans and animals uh, suggested in an opening sequence in which a water buffalo breaks free of its chain and withdraws deep into the jungle and most dramatically in a later one in which a catfish takes the spirit of a princess's bear and becomes her lover of sorts. There is fish sex in this movie. It's, it's an all-timer. And yet, the most impressive thing in the film has no bearing on the beyond. It's a nuanced and slightly acerbic look at the organization of labor on Uncle Boonmi's farm, his relations with his hired help, their legal status, their linguistic differences, and his attempt to ingrate himself with them with some light, condescending clowning. And I think that the reason why this film is so highly regarded is there are so many different aspects that you could approach it from, and each are incredibly deep, insightful glimpses into everything that influenced the film. I mean, it's heavily implied that Uncle Boon Mi served in the Laotian army. I think it was the Laotian army. If it wasn't, it was the Thai army, where he was um, largely killing communists while a soldier. And a lot of that has to do with the guilt that he feels for that. And then, you know, your hired help, people who are more inclined towards this um, uh, aggressively left-wing mentality, are probably not going to trust you and probably resent you outright. And then there's the power dynamic there. Why was he killing communists? Was he doing it because he was told to? Or is it because he had such a large land at his disposal and the communists, specifically the ones in Asia, really didn't take the land bearers... um, I don't know how to say it right. They did not like the the people who owned large swaths of land and refused to give it up to the workers. You know, like this angle here, why do these hired hands speak French so well? Why are they so resentful of Uncle Boon Me for the way that he treated them? You know, if everybody there is doing playful ribbing, why does it hurt so much more whenever it comes from him? And all these things have different layers of socioeconomic influences that you can really latch onto and just kind of be mystified by. Why is that guy speaking French? Well, remember the French-Indochina War? Remember the... I don't even know how many years. They had uh, Vietnam absolutely strangled 
You know, like these things have lasting effects and we're starting to see the lasting effects of outside influences on this movie. So, I mean, you start seeing like this like Christian core as they've pulled away. You're left with this Buddhist, uh, largely Buddhist, if not Buddhist, just outright atheist worker core. And then you get to see the intermingling of those, uh, you know, a decolonizing nation and people who are living with the aftermath of uh, complete and total destabilization of the region. That is an angle that you could take. But I like the metaphysical angle. And um, as I walk through this movie, I want to talk about just how this movie portrays death and why it's so moving and why all this is so touching to me. And I just, just it's the article goes on to say um, it's here that the movie hits something of a metaphysical wall. The world at hand is shown to be full of dangers. Uncle Boonmi lives with the painful memory of having killed communists while a soldier, and a final scene shows news footage of today's Thai army engaged in skirmishes. Yet, um, Weiser Thetkel's, fuck me, the director's spirit realm, for all of its thick air of mystery, is about as threatening as Casper the Friendly Ghost. Even his monkey ghosts, with their laser-like red eyes, are more mischievous than menacing, specters that come off as cinematic playthings. The movie's peaceful spirits suggest something of a persuasive aspect, as if the director were representing them to uh, materialists or to Westerners with a salesman-like benevolence. I wonder whether he believes this, whether he contemplates a spiritual realm that is solely a relief from the world's turmoils, or whether he doesn't want to suggest the prospect of souls facing pains even greater than those who've left their body. I think that's a very, very touching way to kind of ease us into Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to I just want to say that this movie won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, but uh, so did Joker. So who knows what any of this means anymore. (laughs) It's supposed to be the best film that came out that year, but I don't know. It's cool to get an award for a movie you made. I imagine it feels real nice to get congratulated for something you made. The movie opens up on the phrase, Facing the jungle, the hills and vales, My past lives as an animal, and other beings rise up before me. The nasty, wet, hot sounds of a jungle surrounding you and perfect THX sound-designed ambiance make you feel like mosquitoes are actively in the process of biting your penis. Uh, Giving you that suck you don't want is what I wrote in my notes, and I'm realizing that's probably, probably not the best joke. It's one of those tired jokes you write down where you say, Oh, that's gonna kill it. That's gonna kill whenever you do the read, Harry. Good job, buddy. We focus in on this cow, or ox, I'm not really sure. It's got horns and it looks pretty spooky in the dark. It's tied to a tree and really seems to hate being anchored to one place. So the steer manages to free itself, run off into the distance, completely unchained and unrestricted to go wherever they want to go. And I wonder if this is foreshadowing for what the main character may be doing at the end of this movie. For almost five minutes, we get zero dialogue. You're left to just wander the jungle with this cow, which is interrupted by the first line spoken in the movie, 
which is just a man shouting, cow. Which was also the moment that I realized that this was a cow. You see, movies can be a learning experience. Every day I wake up and face the mirror and say, Harry, today's going to be the day you learn something that'll change your life. And by God, if that wasn't true today. This cow gets picked up by a roaming farmer, I'm assuming? A jungle man? Who knows? And it gets taken off to somewhere. Who knows where? If I know anything about humanity, it's how we treat cows. So he's probably not got all that much time left now that I think about it. The camera lingers on the empty jungle for what feels like an hour before we finally see the shot that's become one of the most iconic shots in all of cinema. The all-black figure with bright red beady eyes. I was itching my mustache when this part came up. Like, I was just having a good time, sorting through the hairs, admiring how my body can produce so much of it on my face and almost none of it on top of my head. The scene cut to the shadowy figure, and I almost ripped my beard off of my face. I'm lucky I wasn't doing anything else to my body. Her life may be a whole lot different right now. God, what the fuck kind of shot is that? What a nightmare. The kind of shot that... Had this come out eight years later, would have been a cheap jump scare, and the moment would have no weight to it. But the weight is there, and I guarantee you, when you see it, you'll feel it. This cuts to our title, Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives, a movie title that even as I read it to you, I still can't remember. Nothing to do with the film, there's just something about these words being in this order that's given me a memory problem. I wish I knew. I'd probably get MK Ultra'd four times before noticing it, now that I think about it. After this, we cut to this long, noisy driving sequence. Nothing spectacular happens in it at all. We're just present, there with them, stuck in a moment in time. And, man, do I, uh, I, I'm an absolute sucker for this stuff. Um, Smooth brain film appreciados will probably look at a scene like this and just call it, like, runtime padding. You know, it's like, oh, you didn't have the best story. That's why what you did was you managed to film a whole lot of B-roll of people just kind of existing in a car, and then you slap it together, and then you call it art. And I, I can't disagree more with that. Uh, the scene here, yeah, you're just in a car. It's noisy. It's, it looks hot as shit. But, I mean, we get introduced to all of our characters, which is important. But on top of that, they aren't going somewhere happily. So, think about a movie that is, like, about moving to the big city. You know, you're just a small-town girl, and you're you're going on up to New York City. Now, how, how is that usually filmed? You know, like, the car's going, and you've got a peppy uh, alt-rock song going over the top of it. There's a whole bunch of uh, crane shots and drone shots of the bridge that you're driving over, or you're driving next to a memorable landmark so people really know what city that you're in. And then, what? You know, you go into it and everybody's happy and life is all new. These folks are not experiencing that. They're on their way to console Uncle Boon Me, who they have all learned is dying of a kidney disease. And are you excited to see your family whenever this is the reason why you're coming together? No, I, I don't care how close you are with your family. This shit sucks. So the car ride there is going to be nothing but pure agony. 
Especially given that this house seems so out of the way, if that makes sense. It, it's like they're out like in the uh, just countryside in what feels like the deep jungle in southeastern Asia. And I don't know, the entire ride, there's like nobody's sad, but nobody's happy. There's just kind of this accepting malaise that they're going to be watching someone die and there's not really anything that they can do about it. We see what seems to be friends and family all coming together for a cookout. Everyone's ribbing each other. Uh, two people seem aggressively horny, but placate it by being racist. You know, like posters. And it's here that we learn the real reason why they've all come together. Uncle Boonmi is dying. And he looks like he's dying in an incredibly painful way. His kidneys are failing. And this seems to be the grand meeting place of everyone to come together to say goodbye. What I love about the scene is that they really do linger on the agony of medical treatment. In American medical dramas, we always see the blood and the trauma, but what we don't show is the helplessness, the laying around, the prodding pain that doesn't make you scream in agony. The biggest takeaway I have from this movie is that it's honest in almost every aspect. The car ride? Well, when you're going to meet someone who's dying, it's probably going to feel like an eternity, you know? Getting very rudimentary dialysis? Well, you're going to be sitting there knowing that death is right around the corner. And it's not coming fast. It's creeping up on you incredibly slowly. We don't get to linger on this too much before Uncle Boonmi's wife, who has been dead for years, shows up at the table with them one night. And... As you can imagine, it's kind of strange. You know, like the way they filmed her, uh, having her be translucent, almost like a double exposure directly on film. She's much, much younger than Uncle Boon Me and uh, her little sister by decades. But this wasn't a weird thing like that. She's just frozen in time. She even says that. I have no concept of time anymore. She can't process the trauma of seeing someone you love that has died suddenly coming back into your life. She exists outside of time now. There's a whole lot I could riff on here, like how a fourth dimensional object would perceive us as really long centipedes that are babies on one end and dying men on the other side, but I don't know what it is about this movie. Something about this is really, really respectful about the encroaching fear of death. I mean, we all feel it, you know? All of us probably know of someone who has died by COVID, or died from COVID by now. When death looms around the corner, everything feels like it's closing in, which is a very appropriate transition into the second guest at the table, who is Uncle Boon Mi's son, Boon Song, who looks like a little Sasquatch now. I'm not going to be doing riffs. Those uh, horrible eyes that scared the shit out of me 20 minutes ago are much softer now. He's some sort of uh, swamp monkey man. Some sort of wolf beast. His features are soft. I, uh, I want to do the finger motorboat on his plump lips. Not slipping into that, actually. Um, he's come with a message. Everything around him can sense him dying. And the two things that are beckoning him are spirits and hungry animals. And I swear there's a metaphor here for modern religion, but I'm not smart enough to make it. 
พี่น้องบ้านเฮาตอนนี้ข่อยก็เลยมาหาพอที่ว่ามั่นนั้นมันคืออีหยังล่ะวิญญาณกับซุ้มสัตว์ที่มันอดอยากมันคือกันกับข่อยมันหูสึกได้ถึงความเจ็บป่วยของพอ There's a line in this dialogue between Uncle Boonmi and Boon Song that I thought was super prescient. It's when he says, "Boonsong, I want to recognize you, but I don't." And he goes through this whole dialogue of the night that he vanished. But that line rang in my head the whole time. There's a missing body, and all these men who search for him. But what stood in my head was, "I want to recognize you." The thing here is that when you die, uh, when anyone dies, the world doesn't stop; it keeps going. Because it has to. There is no off button when you yourself die, except for you yourself. And even though someone may mean the world to us, over time their memory will fade, just like everything else does. Someone you love, even like your own child, will one day fade too. It's haunting shit, and it's probably the biggest reason all of us get driven towards religion. You know. The shit's scary. What happens after you die? Is it can't just be curtains, right? There's got to be something else. I don't know. I've never viewed death as a release. I guess I don't like want to be remembered for anything I've done. I don't have that artist want to be remembered for creative work or whatever. But it is humbling to know that someday everyone will forget your face too, and that's what this part of the movie felt like to me. An alternative story develops, which is the reason Boon Song went missing, which was this search he had for a creature called the Monkey Ghost. It sounds dumb, right? But hear me out. If you haven't watched the movie, or you haven't seen the iconic shot of this movie, or a Monkey Ghost himself, it's the eeriest, scariest thing. Like I run this stupid surrealist horror account on Twitter. Just to have like an outlet to talk about me ripping all my skin off and using it as a kite, or but just the image of these alone is better than anything I could come up with if I tried for years. Just a quick image will haunt you more than most things you'll read, and I don't know what it is. Part of it is the fact that the cameras themselves cannot handle how dark these things are at night. Like literally, go look at the footage of Boon Song walking up the stairs. It's literally.、Uh, Like, like you get dark spots in it. You know, like the film literally cannot process how black everything is. The way that these creatures are filmed, with their literally unfilmable bodies and piercing red eyes, it reminds me of a monster from the found footage movie VHS, which is probably my go-to guilty pleasure movie, where one of these videos had a monster that had so much concentrated energy to him, he was just impossible to film. The light、uh, warped around him, and something about that was so much more terrifying than anything you could have shown me. And I can't really explain it. Like something so tough to fathom, literally having a physical shape that you can't perceive is. It's it's what like like a spider. I I'm sorry. Like I I still have like a low level fear of bees, and even then, this guy's scarier than a bunch of bees. The story, after evolving into a search for these beings, abruptly ends, 
and we start getting some of the most stunning cinematography you will probably ever watch in a film. My two favorite shots are the lingering staircase shot. Everything's little tricky, so the, the very dark background looks like it houses something, and the very bright corner looks like it's baiting you into a jump scare, which develops into nothing. We follow the ant with her bad leg the whole way across the house, where absolutely nothing happens. Life is like that sometimes. This cuts to her sleeping in her mosquito net bed, and fuck me, dude, this shot. The soft pink, the angelic-looking aura, it's... It's... Go, go watch the movie. The realization that death is much closer than everyone expects uh, kind of lingers in the air. Uncle Boon Mi swore that he would turn part of his land into a bee farm, a hive, I don't know these words, uh, for his dead wife, and he did that. And all throughout this, we see two things. The ant's deteriorating health, and the fact that it, she is so lonely that she's literally fishing for partners. I don't know what it is. Uh, probably seeing your dead sister who was married to your brother-in-law didn't uh, help the longing for eternal love. I imagine that probably did some psychological trauma. And all throughout this section, she's just looking for something that can feel more permanent than the love she has felt before. She's clearly lonely. Uh, she practically screamed that she was horny at the beginning of this movie, and right now, there's an added weight uh, to fix that. Fix in the biggest air quotes you could ever imagine. Oh, and also, she talks to Uncle Boon Mi about this. This experience of, did your old lover ever visit you after he died? And she said, no, he was just gone. Just more weight onto the chest of someone who's probably not in the best place mentally right now. This cuts to probably predating history times. Uh, fancy ladies being carried in one of those cool chairs with the poles on them. Uh, she seems lonely, but doesn't want to have sex. And um, chooses to fuck a fish in a lake instead. And I know that there's deeper symbology here, but... Uh, I don't think my brain can fathom this scene. <laughs> I've tried really hard to think it out. I've read little write-ups on it. My brain just cannot process it. In the scene after this, we see Uncle Boon Mi and his dead wife, and they're having a conversation. Uncle Boon Mi keeps on talking about how uh, he, when he dies, he wants to find his wife in heaven. You know, so they can spend more time together. He misses her and he still loves her a lot. And he asks her specifically, How do I find you in heaven? And his wife just calmly says, Heaven's overrated. There's nothing there. It's a brutal splash of reality. To the unsure feeling we all have towards uh, what happens when I die. And I think that some people probably find comfort in that, right? Where it's like, oh, there is no specific heaven and hell. There's just kind of like a waiting place you can go to if you want to wait and meet up with people. And then you just kind of wander the earth until the earth dies. And I don't know which one sounds better. Because uh, heaven itself, I'm sure, sounds good. Streets made of gold and pearly gates. Doesn't really 
seem like a good allocation of resources, but apparently, like, the harvest is bountiful, and, you know, it's like you'll never be hungry up there, and the weather's perfect, uh, you know, that, that sounds nice. But also, just kind of staying on Earth and just hanging out and looking at cool fruit and birds. That also sounds pretty cool. After this conversation, um, specifically after being told by his wife that ghosts aren't tied to places, which I imagine fucked with the psyche really bad, he puts all of his belongings on the table to show that he himself is no longer tied to Earth, as he's determined that now he is ready to go to the place where he will die. And this trek through the jungle is packed with incredibly beautiful imagery. The jungle painted as lushly green as it really is, instead of tinted yellow, you know, like a nasty, dank hellscape, and that really is like how it gets depicted in most U.S. movies about the jungle. I'm looking at you, specifically Vietnam-era war movies. Not everything is yellow. I mean, I guess we just do that in Mexico now. Any place that we deem dirty, we put a yellow filter over. And that's just kind of become shorthand for the people here are dirty. And that's a position that I can't be shaken from, I'm sorry. They enter this cave, which is flecked with these bioluminescent spots. It kind of looks like the night sky. And they're constantly, as they're walking through this cave, they're constantly entering and exiting portals into this kind of chamber, this uh, final layer that just is a big dome with an opening at the top. And I'm sure here these are parallels to Dante's Inferno, but that's uh, really like an argument for somebody who's a lot more well-read than I am. But the symbology is there. You know, you cross through a series of portals while you die. I'm sure that uh, medically speaking, it's like, ah, this part of your brain shuts down, which releases this chemical, which makes your brain think this, which releases this chemical. You know, whatever you want to call it. Are you entering a spirit world or is your brain slowly decaying? Doesn't really matter. We're going through the physical motions of somebody preparing to die. They compare the cave itself to a womb, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, he says specifically that he's born in an area and that he'll die in an area. And there's an interconnectedness to everything around you, which slips into, and I'm probably talking out of my ass here, a Buddhist-adjacent philosophy um, that specifically focuses on the inherent nihilism of heaven, or even one existing. So the interconnectedness of the here and now is the only thing that actually matters. And I think this is the scene where the film gets its title from. You know, Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. And the reason why I think that is because of this uh, kind of monologue he goes on to I don't even know who he's talking to, either his wife or himself. But he says, this cave, it's like a womb, isn't it? I was born here, in a life I can't recall. I only know that I was born here. I don't know if I was born human or animal, a woman or man. Last night I dreamt of the future. I arrived there in a sort of time machine. The future city was ruled by an authority able to make anyone disappear. When they found past people, they shone a light at them. The light projected images of them onto the screen. From the past until their arrival in the future. 
one of those images disappeared. These past people disappeared. I was afraid of being captured by this authority because I had many friends in the future. I ran away, but wherever I ran, they still found me. They asked me if I knew this road or that road. I told them I didn't know, and then I disappeared. This whole time is showing footage of him in either the Thai or Laotian army, it seems. Um, one of the images ha shows a soldier with a literal swastika on his hand. And I mean, this seems, this part here at least, implies that he's lived a life of immense regret. And it's uh, those guilty flashes you experience late in life, I guess. The ghost of his dead wife realizes that he's probably accepted that this is the end of the road. And she pulls out his medical equipment from his kidneys and just lets him die there in the cave. The whole family sleeps overnight in the cave, next to his dead body, then start to make their way back into town. His son decides to become a Buddhist monk, uh, kind of reaffirming my big boy brain belief that all this ties back to that nihilist Buddhist argument. And when it's all said and done, they all end up back at this small room, you know, lit with fluorescent light bulbs, very much in the present, in the here and the now. And they're all living exactly the way that they would if Uncle Boonmi was there. Because that's ultimately what death is. It's us coping, then moving on. Didn't mean to get all heavy there at the end. That's just kind of what happens whenever you do an episode on Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his previous lives. Past lives, God, I'll never remember the actual title of that movie. And it has kind of like a an apology for being this late on the episode. I wanted to add something at the end of this. Uh, I went and saw The Green Knight last night, and I got thoughts. Uh, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to see The Green Knight, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of talk about the film in a very broad sense, and I'm going to give a little spoiler warning. And if you haven't seen The Green Knight yet, you should turn it off or it's going to be completely spoiled for you if you haven't read a story that's probably 700 years old. The Green Knight, I was surprised because when I went into the movie I was expecting something completely and totally different there is I mean it's an Arthurian tale these are usually tales of conquest of slaying beasts and whatever and the way that the movie was largely marketed almost pitched it as it was going to be an action movie of sorts and that's very much what you don't get throughout this movie and usually that's a type of movie that I'm really into you know, like a movie that just kind of exists at the speed of life, if you want to get super floral with the language around that. And for the positives of the film, uh, it's some of the best cinematography I've seen in a very long time. The shot composition in this movie, every single room is this very hazy lit, uh, intentionally done that way, it almost seems, because uh, the vignettes that you catch of anything that's in a church almost looks like a painting of the church you know like you get these jutting um like beams of light that seem to dissect the room that will you know as you're focusing in on that light the rest of the room is so painfully dark that it literally looks like an oil painting in some aspects uh the film itself really did focus on the language of the time for the most part 
except for a few kind of breaks from that to do almost millennial voice style jokes, which is just kind of like something that really caught me off guard. There were two that stood out to me um, kind of aggressively that really uh, kind of like shook me to my core. (laughs) Um, The film itself, I think I would recommend people go see it. Um, the issues that I have with it, though, and, you know, I don't like talking about the things I don't like in a movie. I like talking about the things I do like in a movie. The, the things that I that, that were strong was literally, if you look at a film as building blocks, where you're like, the wardrobing. It's top-notch. It's some of, like, the greatest wardrobing that you'll see. The casting. Oh, the casting was fantastic. I mean, they literally casted these royal, aristocratic-type uh, people to look like they're dead and decaying, you know, like they they look horrific, they are incredibly pale, they look frail, and this is what a lot of the nobility of the time in England looked like, you know, there's these people who were just frail because they've just been passing around different family members, making different family members that they'd pass over to other family members. That's uh, the everybody wanted to be a lord or a lady. In, in medieval times, but then you think about the actual logistics of that, and it's actually pretty gross. Uh, the film itself really, really did color correction. Just so nice. And it did it in a way where there were scenes that were vibrant, and there were scenes that were kind of that broody overcast that Christopher Nolan and company have made incredibly popular. But they're chopped up a lot. You know, it's not just, oh, this film looks like there's a blue and gray filter over the top of it. Every color feels lush. It feels rich. It looks like the English countryside because of just how dreary it looks at points and then how beautiful it looks at others. Um, The story itself is not just the story of Gawain. That, you know, the, the, the premise of the story is it's Christmas Day and all these... Warriors are sitting around at the table with King Arthur himself, and he goes, I want a challenge. And then uh, the Green Knight shows up and goes, all right, so uh, I, I did this, uh, I got this little challenge, or a piece of paper, and, you know, uh, I want someone to hit me as hard as they physically can, but do know that I'm going to hit you back even harder one year from now on Christmas Day. Our beautiful main character cuts his head off, and then it's the journey over the course of a year to... Christmas Day. That's a pretty simple story, but the thing is, you can't really make a movie out of that. You know, that's, it's very much a point A to point B. That movie would be like 10 minutes long. So what they did was they managed to kind of combine all these different Arthurian tales together and just kind of like general mythos, general um, pagan iconography in a way that like, I'm glad I brought that up because I didn't write anything down about this. The pagan iconography throughout this movie is fantastic. And um, I know I posted about this on Twitter, but I'll say it here too. The fact that pagan iconography, pagan visuals, pagan mentality was implemented in a way that didn't cater directly towards white nationalism is something that I'm like stunned to see. You know, everything that's pagan uh, really always ends up being some sort of white nationalist adjacent thing. I remember I went to Publix and I saw this guy with runes tattooed around his arm and that uh, extremely short on the sides, very long on the top haircut. And I was like, oh, cool, a neo-Nazi. 
You know, like, this stuff has been adopted by uh, white bloodline purity types, and it fucking sucks, because a lot of this stuff is really cool to look at, specifically in the aspect of, like, runes and forest gods. So, I mean, them doing this, them casting a non-white actor to act in the role, and um, painting him as a person genuinely uh, pursuing nobility, literally in the very literal sense, but also uh, as a pursuit of honor, um, it... It's it's a very middle-of-the-line movie for me in that aspect. Where it's like the film itself, the most exciting parts of the film are almost always with another person in scene. Which is why they had to chop it up the way that they did. Because the original poem would just would have been a guy walking through a forest. Just kind of aimlessly. Which is why this got double feature Uncle Boom me. But, like, I mean, that that ultimately would be the um, the plot. And, you know, nobody wants to watch that. Do you just want eye candy for an hour and a half, two hours? No, i I got to have some sort of substance to my style, you know? So the, all the scenes, like the first scene of the movie that I really genuinely enjoyed involved another person. And, like, their dialogue between each other, while it did slip into almost a millennial voice, uh, so, uh, are you going to pay me? Uh it still was, like, very refreshing. It was like, ah, the person who directed this clearly knows how to film dialogue scenes in a way that will feel memorable and not feel hokey whatsoever. You know, like, that aspect of the film um, stood out to me, and if if I were a, a hack film critic, this movie would get two thumbs sideways, pointing either direction. Because I genuinely don't know how I feel about this film. It's, it's good, but I... I wouldn't rush out to see it, if that makes sense. If I if I was a hack, I'd say this is the most A24 movie of all time, which I'm not going to do that. But, I mean, if this is going to be the bar that we're setting for movies coming back to theaters, I'm perfectly fine with it. It's just, it's an aggressively okay movie. And now, I'm going to be uh, slipping into spoilers. So, uh, this is spoiler warning. This is spoiler. This is your time to pause the episode and get out. There's going to be nothing for you at the end of this episode. Just letting you know. You have all the time in the world. Having a little night coffee right now. So I'm going to sip on my night coffee and give you guys just a little bit of time to go ahead and hit that pause button if you don't want this movie spoiled. Uh, because eh, no, there's nothing worse than getting your movie spoiled. You know what I mean, fellas? And ladies, and everyone else. Sorry, I got coffee caught in my throat. Alright, I've given you plenty of time to stop listening to the podcast, and I'm going to be going into spoilers in three, two, one. The thing about The Green Knight that was kind of one of the more abrasive things to me was the fact that uh, the movie largely did... Subversion of your expectations. In the aspects of, like, how they portrayed different Arthurian legends. And there were several Arthurian legends throughout this uh, movie. The two, uh, I mean, like, like really, like, the four that are the most popular are going to be Gawain, the Green Knight, who I found out was King Arthur and um, Morgan Le Fay. And... Going, you know, is a guy who wants to be a knight, fine. Uh, the Green Knight, I think that, you know, they did a, an incredibly good job 
designing the Green Knight. He has like a tree beard. He's incredibly big, super lumbering, carries around a great axe with one hand. Imagine how big that shit is. Like, it's it's so awesome. But it turned on its head Morgan Le Fay and King Arthur. And these two um, god or gods, goddesses, whatever you want to call them, legends, are, you know, largely associated with being unbelievably powerful beings. King Arthur being the most obvious, you know, he's the king that can slay anything. He's got this massive sword that he swings around. Um, he's almost always depicted as being this incredibly virile spirit. And in the movie, they just kind of depict him as a dead and dying grandpa. And I'm sure that in the poems, it was probably gearing up towards this. And I mean, that it was set up for the end of the movie because it was like there has to be a chain of succession that goes from the grand encounter that's going to happen with the Green Knight and him then becoming the king because of his proximity via his mother and him and, you know, like the chain of succession and all that stuff. But, like, that there, that was kind of like a moment where I was like, oh, shit, that's King Arthur. And they're making him look weak to... Subvert our expectations. The other one was Morgan Le Fay, who almost always is depicted as being this incredibly young sorceress. Morgan Le Fay is often seen with dragons. She's, uh, imagine that type of goddess, that type of legend, deity, whatever you want to call them. And in this movie... She's an incredibly old woman. Um, they did a whole lot of artistic liberties with her, obviously, because as you'll find with these uh, pagan gods, the ones that are trickster gods, the ones that deal with conjuring, are almost always decked yeah, decked out in black, and if not black, a deep, deep indigo. So, you know, you have like your Tay Morgans, you have your Morgan Le Fays, and they depict her in all white, and they make her blind, which is very much not a thing that she is in mythology. And I mean, that's fine. It's just... The subversion of your expectations You know, just... <laughs> when you see enough of it, your, your eyes will go like, ah, you wanted to make this your story. Alright. Guess all gods are, are weak now. That's gonna be a plot point. So, I mean, like, that aspect of it, it's, it didn't rub me the wrong way, but, like, I get it. But um, some of the stuff in the film, like, I, I don't want to be that guy who's like, oh, this is a very A24 film. But it seemed like it took the greatest hits of other movies that were released by, a, or distributed by, A24, and was like, oh, that's a thing that I want to use in my movie. Uh, one of them being that kind of seminal uh, shot in Midsummer one of the most useful shots in the entire movie. And I, I am a truther. I truly do believe that Midsummer is a great film. I don't think it's just good. I don't think that it was just fine. I think Midsummer is truly great, having seen, or having seen the um, director's cut. And, I mean, I did an episode on it. You guys know. Um, if you haven't, go listen to that episode. It's real good. But, I mean, like, they even did that upside-down shot with it. And in this movie, it just kind of felt pointless like a lot of the cinematography and again there's nothing wrong with this type of filmmaking it's just for me personally it was beautiful for the sake of being beautiful not beautiful for the sake of any sort of ulterior messaging if that makes sense like 
The Green Knight is largely composed of wood. He's composed of Gaia. He's composed of the dirt and the steel of the rocks. And, you know, it's a, it's a whole bunch of things. These are pagan people. These are pagan gods. And, I mean, you think that the forest would play a little bit more of a role in that. And all that happens to Gawain as he's going through um, the forest is he's being tricked by people. He's being abused by people. When, like, the story was about, like, you know, traversing wilderness through nature. And again, it's, it goes into the, the bigger story of, like, oh, so you can't actually uh, film the literal poem. And it's like, well, then I guess the, pil the, the poem is unfilmable. You know, gets into that. Overall, the film is, you know, it's an incredibly, it's an incredibly beautiful film. It's a lot more style than substance. Um, there are some homages to stuff that I'm convinced exist in this movie, like one of the upside-down shots seem like a grand homage to Midsummer, as well as the opening of the movie, I'm convinced, is an homage to Kendrick Lamar's Humble, where you know like it's a foggy uh, cathedral, and then his head catches on fire, which are two of the major scenes in Kendrick Lamar's Humble video. You know, the, the song opens up with him standing there with the scepter dressed up like the Pope in a cathedral that looks largely like the one that Gawain is sitting in, and then the heads on fire thing, there's that, uh, what's, what's that lyric? Where he's like, I make a play fucking up your whole life. And his head's on fire and all the guys have ropes around their heads that are on fire. I mean, his head literally catches on fire there. Which has no basis for anything else that happens in the movie. That's why I think that it's a direct homage to that. Which, that type of stuff, I'm very much here for. I mean, that's, it's nice. But the ultimate thing is, does it serve a purpose towards the story it doesn't. Uh, this, to me, kind of falls in line with uh, a movie like... I don't know, this is going to make people mad, I'm sorry. Like, Wong Kar Wai's uh, 2046. You know, it's like, just pure eye candy. Wonderful to look at. But the substance never really feels like it's there. Um, you know, it's the, the scene in the, the chapel where the Green Knight himself is in that is some of the most stunning set design I have ever seen in a movie. Uh, listeners of this podcast know how big I am into nature reclaiming uh, what we've built. I'm going to be literally getting a tattoo sleeve that that is going to be the theme, is different kudzu vines taking over different pieces of architecture and art. I love this. I live for this type of shit. And this scene here, not only was that the point, the overgrowth, how long it's been, you know, the Green Knight being uh, built from this type of uh, environment, it all makes sense. You know, he is a creature, a deity of his environment. So his environment looking like this, it makes sense. There is a point in this being beautiful, and that's why that scene sticks out in my head so much. So basically, from the second that he drops to his knees and he's getting ready for the axe to swing and chop his head off, and then we go through the fever dream of, you know, him living in his guilt for not being brave and not pursuing honor... That's the best part of the movie to me. It's a stunningly beautiful film, in, and it's like, it, it, none of this built up to that, if that makes sense. You know, like this whole sense of honor, the sense of duty, the sense of being, uh, isn't really done too much up in the movie up until this point. I mean, there's a guy who really, really wants to be a knight, and he feels bad because he's kind of lying via omitting the truth, if that makes sense. And then, you know, you get to this point in the film, and then it's like, ah, oh, this is what it could have been. You know, this life of regret, this insane 
thing that you could have done if you're going to be doing the subversion of expectations there's this is the expectation that you could have subverted you know what if he did run away from him you know the guilt of that and then him meeting his untimely fate you know that there that could have been such a cool film where you took the poem itself and then you created a truly new story out of it and i know that that sounds nitpicky i know that that sounds like i'm just kind of circling around a point that I'm, I think that I'm making but I'm not necessarily making but that is why it kind of gets too, too big old thumbs sideways for me it's every part of the movie is good every part of it but the parts didn't blend together and I think that if you guys were to watch it I'd like to know if you agree with me on that if you haven't watched it and you just got this whole thing spoiled you're a sicko you're going on my sicko list. But I don't want to, you know, convince people not to watch it. Please go out and support cinema that's not a big budget blockbuster action movie. Please. No, it's... I went and saw it. I ended up paying a whole lot of money to go see it. And it's fun. It's eye candy. But it could have been better. And I think that's where I want to leave that. Thank you for listening this week, folks, and as promised, I cannot expose what's coming up this next week, but just know that something is, and hopefully this time, it'll be on time.